morning. Please open your Bibles to the 119th Psalm, Psalm 119, verse 161 to 168. I'll remind you that over the last year, we've been going through the 119th Psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, and the Epistle of James. So we've done a paragraph in James, a couple weeks in James, and then we've done a, a stanza or two in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is an extended acrostic, and so it seemed unfitting to try to blast through it in two weeks. It also seemed particularly um, possibly challenging to spend 22 weeks in a row in it, so I thought by doing a week or two, going back to James, a week or two, we would not um, grow callous through familiarity. On Psalm 119, as we draw to the close, this Sunday we'll look at the second to last stanza, and next week, God willing, we'll consider the final stanza, is, is a three-way conversation between the psalmist and God and his word. Those are the three reference. You could argue maybe a fourth to his enemies, but really it's talking to God about the word or talking about the word to God. He, he's... he's Thrilled, captivated, celebrating the word. And yet we also see a robust emotional life. We see the highs and the lows, the despairing anguish, the joy. This morning is a relatively high note. And so I actually want, as we read through verses 161 to 168, to actually read the last two stanzas. I want, you to, I want them to contrast each other. The dominant motif in verses 161 to 168 is personal autobiographical statements about the psalmist, his attitude, what he loves, what he hates. You can, you can see it in 161, my heart stands in awe. 162, I rejoice. 163, I hate, I love. 164, I praise. 166, I hope and I do. 167, my soul keeps, I love and I keep. There's no petitions. There's no requests. There's a celebration of the greatness of God's word. And that can be daunting for us because, if we're honest, there are times when we can find God's word boring, dull, unexciting. And we can read a stanza like this and become intimidated. Is this written by super-Christians for super-Christians only? I don't think so. And so I think the contrast of the, the final stanza, which is just filled with requests and petitions, is helpful to see this. Both, both of these realities exist in the child of God. So let's read Psalm 119, 161 through the end of the psalm. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope in your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. 
Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Lord God, as we come to these final verses in this great psalm, we would be changed. We would see your glory, and in seeing it, be transformed. Help us to see and to believe and to experience and savor the true greatness of your word, and let that fuel our obedience, fuel our Christian lives. Let us learn from this example. Let us put this song on our lips. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Celebrating the greatness of God's word. And I'll I'll come back to this at the end of this morning's message, but again, I want to suggest to you this. There may be times in your experience where the emotional, experiential, Volitional, the loves, the hates, the awe, the hopes speak to where you're at entirely. This is a great stanza for you. There may be other times when the statements of experiential, I hate, I love, I stand in awe, I hope, I long. It's not simply doctrinal truth. They're statements of personal experience. What What do you do with this passage if that's not where you're at? I would suggest to you that a way of looking at this stanza is here is the word of God affecting the child of God when rightly perceived, when seen clearly. We'll look later this morning at a passage in 2 Corinthians that talks about a veil being over our faces. That when I come to God's word in the morning, on a cup of coffee, or whenever, and if when I find it dull and boring, it speaks to problems with me, not problems with it. And so faith would tell us that if I were seeing it rightly, if I were apprehending God's word truly, this stanza would speak of my experience. This stanza would speak of your experience. Already, turn back in Psalm 119 to um, verse, where is it? It's 100 and... Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your word. Where is that? Oh. That's why I should have had this underlined before I got to here. Um, Already, okay. Already in the psalm, repeatedly, he has asked the Lord to open his eyes. Verse 18, there it is. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So I would suggest to you that when you come to God's word and you find the front page of the newspaper or your, we don't use newspapers anymore, but your news site more interesting and exciting than God's word, that you make this your prayer. That faith would speak up in your mind and say, yes, it's no use pretending you're excited about something you're not excited about. But it's not that God's word has altered. 
My sight has grown dim. And then you can pray, Lord, open my eyes. I, I, I need to see it as glorious. Because you're going to see this morning, we're going to see this morning, that, that seeing and experiencing God's word for what it is, is crucial to fueling the Christian life. Crucial to fueling the Christian life. So if this is where you're at, here's a, here's a song to sing. Here's a praise to extol. If this is not where you're at, understand this, this is how God would have his children interact with and operate with his word. He would have you be invigorated, full of hope, full of joy, full of confidence as you pursue his word and his precepts. And then make that your, what you're seeking in prayer. Make that what you're seeking. Don't, don't settle for a Christian life where God's word is boring, and obedience is tedious and hard. Seek these high plateaus. And recognize even in the next stanza that that'll be alongside of pleadings and cryings and weakness and fear and anxiety. One of the reasons I love this psalm. It's not just highs and lows, but it shows that the Christian life is, is variegated. So let's begin, point one, the psalmist sees God's word rightly. The psalmist sees God's word rightly. And that's the idea. He's, he's apprehending it properly. The veil is removed. He's seeing it for what it is. And what we're going to see is that in seeing it for what it is and beholding it rightly, it affects him it changes him. It causes feelings, loves to arise in him. And in every instance, it's a greater something. The psalmist sees God's word rightly. First, verse 161, it produces a greater fear. It produces a greater fear. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Now, princes, rulers, have been mentioned previously in Psalm 119 as, as one of his foes. The notion of persecution is never far removed in this psalm. And sometimes he'll bring it up and ask the Lord to deliver him. Here, I want you to see the contrast. You'd expect, if you found out that rulers, politicians, senators, governors, presidents were gunning for you, you might expect, oh, help Oh, Lord, deliver. And the psalmist at times does pray that. Nothing wrong with that. But what's the contrast here? He's not standing in fear or in awe of these rulers. The contrast is, even though princes persecute me without cause, my heart stands in awe at your words. Awe, the notion of fear, wonder. I stand afraid at your words. Um, the notion of the fear of the Lord, taking something seriously. He's got a real threat, real threat to his life. We've seen repeatedly, give me life, preserve my soul, give me life. This isn't hyperbole. And in contrast to what you and I might think would terrify, his, his heart's captivated and standing in awe of something else because, because God's word seen rightly produces a greater fear. How do, you, how do you overcome anxiety and fear? Fear something greater. Fear God. Fear his word. That's how sometimes we do some of the more difficult things we need to do. You ever need to go apologize to someone that you don't want to apologize to? What you're in essence doing when you do that is, as afraid as I am of how difficult this will be, I'm more afraid of God. And a greater fear and a greater awe will give you the stability to deal with real threats in your life. It produces a greater fear. So we see first his danger. Princes persecute me without cause. 
But in contrast, what stabilizes him? His wonder. My heart stands in awe of your words. He's dealing with something far more powerful, far greater in God's word than he is with these real geopolitical threats. We we live in a day of clear geopolitical uncertainty. What's going to provide the stability that we're not tossed to and fro? Fearing something greater. There's a greater king who has a greater word. Fear that. Fear him. Stand in awe at him and you'll find the other powers. And they're real powers. They can do real harm. These, these princes can put this guy to death in their proper perspective and place. So in seeing God's word rightly, it produces a greater fear in him. Let's look at the next contrast. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. It yields a greater contentment. Let me read a quote from this um, daily devotional from Psalm 119. The picture here is amazing. People are persecuting the psalmist without cause, and he sits like a miser over a pile of spoils, delighting as he goes through each item. It's not that he's clueless to what is going on around him. He is simply preoccupied with the greater reward. He could be complaining. He could be maneuvering. Instead, he is praising God for his righteous ordinances. It's a tremendous picture. And again, seen rightly, God's word becomes a greater treasure to us than spoil. I mean, imagine we're, we're right now in the income tax return season of the year. Imagine you got a letter from the IRS telling you that they'd made an error over the last five or six years, and they were going to deposit $50,000 into your account. Imagine once you checked to make sure that was real, because in my experience, I'd just as likely get a letter the next week telling me it was the opposite. I owed them. And we, we got, there's no one, we're filing. We got like things that contradict each other. But imagine it was settled, it was real, it was true. You got a windfall of $50,000. That's not even great riches, but it's, it's significant, right? Imagine how excited you'd be thinking about what you could do with that, what home improvements you might make, what, what purchases, what car, what vacation, or what investments, or what preparations for the future, or whatever good thing you might plan to do with that. I can imagine you'd spend some very contented and pleased time thinking, praying, contemplating what you would do with that. The psalmist here says he has more joy than that or at least commensurate joy with that. It yields a greater contentment. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Really, the picture would be coming across the, you know, the, the treasure chest of gold, the, the, the lost Spanish treasure, or whatever the popular movies will make it to be. This is also how Jesus describes um, salvation, in Matthew thirteen forty four, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. I mean, understand, in God's word, you have access to the thoughts, mind, counsels, purposes, judgments, decrees, predictions of God, the, the maker of heaven and earth. He has graciously revealed to us his thoughts, his opinions, his commands on so many topics. 
We have access to foundational reality and what he thinks and what he requires and what he commands on so many topics. That is such a privilege. That is such a treasure. And when we understand God's word for this, we find a contentment in it that that competes with and triumphs over this world's riches. It yields a greater contentment. Point C, it generates a greater commitment. It generates a greater commitment. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Notice first his loyalty. And second, his devotion. And, and here's, here's the idea. This is more than simply intellectual assent. This is entrusting yourself to something. This is picking a team. Now, I've heard and I trust that people who root for sports teams don't like the opposing teams they're fighting, generally. Um, this, I think that's true. Could be, thank, thank you. I could be wrong. But, but the idea is, it's more than just, I, I, I think this is true. Committing yourself to truth and loving truth demands a reciprocal response to falsehood. It's an either-or proposition. It's not simply, I think this is true. I love what is true. And by loving what is true, I hate what is false. My love for my children is in part expressed by my abhorrence for what might harm them. The two go hand in hand. There is no neutrality with error. Our love of the truth should dwell up within us an equal hatred of falsehood. And and God's word does that. It's polarizing. It's polarizing. It's an either or. It's not simply knowing things are true, but loving things that are true. Second Thessalonians describes those who perish because they refuse to love the truth. And when we see God's word for what it is, when God's spirit opens our eyes so we can behold it, we simultaneously have a love and a loyal commitment to truth and also a disdain for, repudiation of, hatred of what is false. Loving right things will also demand hating wrong things. The important thing is to love the right things and hate the right things. So often we can get that confused. It generates a greater commitment. His loyalty, I hate every false way. His devotion, but I love your law. Point D, it provides a greater satisfaction. It provides a greater satisfaction. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. Now, it's possible the psalmist really is doing this seven times a day. I I wouldn't argue that point. But from other uses of this sort of seven figure of speech, I think it suggests continual praise, regular habit or pattern. Listen to Proverbs 24, 16. The righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumbles in time of calamity. I don't think the notion is if you're righteous, you're good up to seven times, but on the eighth time, you're on your own. It's a picture of completeness. The righteous may stumble, but he gets back up. The, the wicked stumbles and stays down. Continually, I think that's probably what's going on here. Again, I would not argue with you if you think, no, I think seven times a day he's praising God. Either way, what's the point? This is continuous praise. Throughout his day, throughout his night, he's reminded and thankful. And you're thankful for things that satisfy you. That's, that's where I get the idea of satisfaction. You're pleased by them. You delight in them. 
And so throughout the day, you're reminded how thankful, how satisfied you are for these things. And we've seen this psalmist be in dire straits. We we know how difficult the external pressure has been. And yet, even with and alongside of that is a stabilizing satisfaction. He is thanking God. Even as he's about to cry out for more help. The two aren't mutually exclusive. You can be needy, desperate, needing help, and thankful. This psalm demonstrates that clearly. And his continual praise has a source. The source of his praise for your righteous rules. This flows together. He loves your law because he hates truth. And therefore he is satisfied and thankful for God's righteous or true rules. If you love truth, you're thankful for truth. It goes without saying. Which brings us to point E. Point E. Now notice here, 165 is the only verse of this stanza not written in the first person. Every other verse is I or my, right? Here, we're talking about other people. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. And here, your point is it guarantees a greater security. I think what the psalmist is doing in this verse, out of all the things he's celebrating, out of all the glorious realities he's experiencing, this truth is commended most to the reader. You want to sum up the blessings of God's word, why you should delight in it, why you should you know, look over it like a miser over a pot of gold, why you should be thankful seven times a day for it, because great peace of those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. That's why. This is, the, this is the proverbial truth. This is not just true about the psalmist, but this is true about all. It guarantees a greater security. Point one, we see it's safety. Great peace of those who love your law. Now, when the Bible talks about peace, shalom, it's not fundamentally the idea of the removal of threat or hostility, but security in it. I once saw a picture of a bird's nest sitting underneath a waterfall in that shade area. Someone trying to illustrate the notion of, of biblical peace. It's not that there isn't dangers and threats around, but rather there's an inward security and peace that comes with it. Even that statement, nothing can make them stumble, the stability here. It's, it's not perfect. He's not saying those who love God's law never stumble. Just, just look at the last verse in this psalm. To make that point clear, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Again, I think the idea is they, they get back up. They may be knocked down, but they get up. Nothing permanently makes them stumble. Proverbs twenty-seven sixteen: the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. I think the New Testament offers a good picture of this type of stability, this contrast. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4, please. 2 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul testifies both to the external difficulty. I think here's this picture of peace that we're talking about. It's not a peaceful and tranquil life. The Apostle Paul did not leave, live a peaceful and tranquil life. Just read through the book of Acts. He was stoned and left for dead, chased out of cities. Later in 2 Corinthians, um, he will recount how many times he's been beaten, shipwrecked, hunted. Now, the Apostle Paul had a tumultuous life. And he contrasts that external 
pressure and suffering with an internal peace. This is, I think, what is being offered the child of God. It's not that God will remove all difficulty from your life, but you will have a stability and a peace and a security amidst the storm. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Then jump down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our psalmist might say, though princes persecute me without cause, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is speaking to a profound confidence and stability inwardly, a peace inwardly. I know who's in control. I know where I'm going when I die. I know who upholds me, even as outwardly he's being buffeted. I think that's what the psalmist back in Psalm 119. You can keep your finger here because we're to come back to 2 Corinthians 3 at the end. But we'll go back to 119 for now. But I think that's the idea here. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Nothing can make them stumble. And that's, that's really the, the commission here. It's, it's, he's commending not just knowing God's word. We know from Jesus' temptation with Satan, Satan knows God's word. He can quote it pretty well, right? That's how he tempted Jesus with quotations from the Bible. The psalmist is not commending knowing God's word. The psalmist is commending loving God's word, delighting in God's word. Great peace have those who love your law. And going back to the beginning of this, I I know you can't love what you don't love. You can't sit there in the morning, half awake with your coffee, looking at this page going, I know I should love this, but I just want to see the score from last night's game. The solution isn't pretend you love it. Fake it till you make it. The solution is cry out verse 118, verse 18. Oh God, open my eyes. I know there's glory here and I know I'm not seeing it. And I know your spirit alone can open my eyes to see it. And I know I need to see it. I know if I want the stability, the peace, the strength that I need, I'm going to need to see it. So I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I'm going to stay here. Like Jacob wrestling with the angel, I'm not going to let you go to you bless me. I'm, I'm staying here till you show me some glory. Till some desire and affection wells up within me. That, that's how you respond to this. Um, don't give up. Don't fake it. Pray the prayers already modeled for us in this psalm. We, you need to love God's law if you want to experience that peace. You, you need to love his word. So that's, that's the psalmist rightly seeing God's word. 
It produces a greater fear. It yields a greater contentment. It generates a greater commitment. It provides a greater satisfaction, and it guarantees a greater security, which I think goes all the way back up to the princes. Ultimately, why can his awe, his heart be in awe of God's word and not distracted by these princes? Because peace is for those who love God's law, and nothing can make them stumble. The shift now in the final three verses are his response. Where He's still giving some autobiography of how he feels about God's word, but now you can see well up within it that the psalmist keeps God's word diligently. 166, I do your commandments. 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. 168, I keep your precepts. And we need to understand this point clearly because there are two errors. There's always two ditches on either side of the road. One error tends toward legalism, tends toward self-reliance. You just, just do it. You get her done. You just use your willpower and your self-reliance and some determination, and you do it. And it doesn't matter what you love, and it doesn't matter what you delight in. It's not a matter of those wishy-washy emotions. You just get in there and do it. That's not what's modeled for us here. The other danger is to say all that matters is that you love God, And obedience really is unimportant. The two are wedded. The two are wedded. His obedience to God's word, we'll see, comes out of his hope and his love. And I don't think he could keep God's word and follow his prescriptions the way he does without it. They're necessary. You ask, what's more important? Loving God and his word, keeping his commandments? Okay, what's more important, inhaling or exhaling? Which wing of the plane is more important? Which blade of the scissors? They're inseparably linked. To try to obey without starting with the delight, the love of God's word, is gonna, you're either going to do what the Pharisees did, have to dumb down God's requirements to something you can keep in your flesh and become self-righteous, or you'll despair in your inability. But just to focus on feelings that never moves to actions, that's Paul's description of the Jews. I testify, they have a zeal for God. They're passionate in their worship services. Their hands are up. But they rejected their Messiah. They need to be wedded. They need to be wedded. So the psalmist keeps God's word diligently because of his great hope. Because of his great hope. Hope. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. And notice the link. The hope produces the obedience. In fact, your blanks here are root, the root of the tree, I hope for your salvation, and its fruit, I do your commandments. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. This is, this is what the New Testament calls the helm in, second, in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Even as we trust we are saved, we're hoping in God's salvation. And that hope, according to 1 John, produces works of obedience. Not coming out of some debtor's ethic, not coming out of some legalistic um, self-will, but genuinely as the true fruit of the tree of hope. Listen to 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. 
make this point clearly. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Get that. Everyone who has this hope, not some, everyone, purifies himself as he is pure. What that means is, if you're attending Dave Lample's class on eschatology, and you've got the charts memorized, and you can fill in all the blanks, but you're not purifying yourself as he is pure, you're not putting your hope in it. You may have some sort of mental cognition. Everyone who hopes in him for these things purifies himself as he is pure. Eschatology is not meant to be abstract. It's meant to fuel holiness. It's meant to fuel our hope and give us motives and reasons to obey. Remember what he's promised. Remember what's coming. Remember what awaits us. Let's go. It's worth it. Let's follow him. Because of his great hope. It's root, I hope, for your salvation. It's fruit, I do your commandments. Secondly, his keeping of God's word diligently is because of his great love. My soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. You would ask the psalmist, why are you so focused on obedience? It's kind of a little unnerving how focused you are on works. You say, what are you talking about? I love to please the Lord. I love to do his commandments. It's not legalism. You see, inwardly, he keeps... My soul keeps your testimonies. This is coming from the deepest inward well of him. This isn't something he's just bolting on after the fact. From his soul comes a diligent keeping of his testimonies. And it's done passionately. I love them. And it's not just I love them. I love them exceedingly. And the New Testament, again, will link together what you love and what you hate as the cause for what you do. Mitchell McClure, a few months ago, preached on why men reject Jesus in John 3. I'll read to you the passage. Why don't people come to Jesus? Why do unbelievers reject Christ? Is it because they lack plausible arguments? Is it because they have yet to see sufficient evidence? This is the judgment. John 3.19. Light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Get, get the flow of logic. You do wicked things, you love darkness. If you love darkness, you notice also, you're on one team, you hate the other. I don't like light that exposes my dark deeds. Therefore, I stay away from Jesus. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light, for their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. On the flip side, in John 14, 15, Jesus makes the other connection positively. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Which again makes, makes it impossible. Well, what do you do with the person who loves Jesus but doesn't obey? They don't exist. They don't exist. The Bible can talk about self-deception. The Bible can talk about not even knowing our own hearts. And I'll talk to people 
I have talked to plenty of people who are mired in sin and will insist to me that they love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you'll keep his commandments. Genuine love of the Lord and his word will produce some effort. And here we see that connection inwardly coming up from his soul. Because of his great love, he loves the Lord's testimonies and therefore he keeps them. I love them exceedingly. My soul keeps your testimonies. Finally, point C. Because of his great God. And up to this point, the focus has been on God's word. Here, if he keeps, I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. I mean, it's the mingling of the, the God of the word and the word of God. It's, it's not neither or. The God of the word is always in view when he's considering the word of God. And whenever he considers the God of the word, his word is in view. So first notice it's practical application. Practical. I keep your precepts and testimonies. He's just repeating himself now. We're getting, you get the emphasis. Coming out of his love and his hope and his contentment and his miserly delight over great spoil and his seven times a day praise and the great peace is I keep, I do, I keep. The root of the tree, the fruit of the tree. But there's also a personal element as well. For all my ways are before you. All my ways are before you. There's a Latin expression, coram Deo, that speaks to the reality that all of our life is lived before the face of God. Turn over to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. This, this truth is glorious. The theology... Truth is meant to affect our emotions and our actions. And, and here, the psalmist confesses part of why, one of the reasons he keeps the Lord's precepts is he's aware that his entire life is lived before the face of the Lord. God is not remote and far off in some distant place, but he is present and at hand. It's why he's praying for him to help, because God's a present aid. But it also provides um, some level of conviction that my life is lived in front of the Lord. All of it. Look at David as he considers these realities. Psalm 139, just the first six verses. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. What I love about this is we can talk about the doctrine of omniscience. And it's a true doctrine. God knows all. David takes the theological doctrine of omniscience and makes it personal. If God knows everything, then he knows everything about me. He knows what I'm thinking. You search my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind him before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I, it is high. I cannot attain to it. The psalmist is aware. His life is lived in front of the Lord. God, your, your life, my life is lived in front of the God who is near. And such knowledge will affect the way we live. Such knowledge will affect the way we live. Go back to 2 Corinthians 3. We'll close here briefly. There have been moments in my life, times, seasons, where I could sing 
these words as an accurate reflection of where I live. And there are other times when this is my longing. What I beg of you to do is to not just think this is some hyperbole for super Christians. And us regular Christians, we just work in the trenches. Seek these experiences. Seek these feelings and delights and loves. And, and that, that's how we grow. Let me just read to you 2 Corinthians 3. Um, go from verse 12 to 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put on a veil over his face that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, and in the context, it's in that word, it's in the Old Testament, he's referring to specifically Moses. And the Jews look at the books of Moses, and there's a veil. And the veil gets removed, and what do you see? Glory. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is not ancillary to the Christian life. This is the marrow. This is the center of the Christian life. We, we get transformed by seeing glory. We, we fuel our Christian lives by being satisfied with the superior word, the greater fear, a greater love, a greater delight. And we're going to transition to a time of communion now. Let me have a word of prayer as we do that. Lord God, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word, that you would not let us be satisfied with seeing dully, but that we would yearn, strive, grasp, beseech you to do what only you can do. Let us see your glory in your word. Well up within our hearts, a love, a satisfaction, a hope, a longing that will then fuel our keeping. In Jesus' name, amen.